Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, Dysfunctional, was recorded live at the Workshop Brewing Company in Traverse City, Michigan in February 2020. After you listen to the stories, stick around for a conversation with our special guest, Jen Loop, a dog trainer, and so much more. In our first story, Jen Loop is on a boat on the North Sea, and she's unsure if she would rather isolate or connect with other passengers. So I was on a boat in the middle of the North Sea. This was on the way to the Shetland Islands. So the Shetland Islands are essentially halfway between Scotland and Norway. They're out there. This was a 400-foot boat, eight decks, and I was solo traveling. I was essentially backpacking in Europe. Um, I had been in London for a few weeks, so I was doing well with all the accents, and I wanted to take my own adventure. Now, I've done enough of this to know that when I'm in this mode, it's because I want to probably find something out about myself, um, connect with myself a little bit more, maybe disconnect. I mean, choosing an island in the middle of the North Sea seems a little disconnecty. Um, but it really is about figuring out my relationship to the world and to other people. Now, this had been a long enough trip, though, that I was starting to get a little lonely. Um, it had been five days on my own. And at some point when you're experiencing a bunch of new things, you really want to share that with someone that knows you <laughs> or at least have someone that can listen to you when you're having your own observations. So I was bobbing along with my little backpack, and by that I mean a very large backpack. It's about as big as I am. Um, and trying to find a place to charge my phone. Charge my phone, charge my computer. This boat had a lot of dining spaces and also a little bar in the center. And as I was walking through the bar area, there was a guy there, and he knew what I was looking for. He said something friendly enough. Um, and as a woman traveler by myself, I am cautious. I'm not just going to talk to anyone. And I really do think that I have good instincts with evaluating who are good people to talk to. Um, but he opened with something that had to do with, I can tell you're looking for this. Would you like to sit here and charge your stuff? I was like, OK, great. That's friendly. Cool. I'm going to play it cool. Um, we started chatting. and. One of the, the dreams of solo travel, right, when you're lonely and by yourself, is like, I'm going to meet my soulmate. And really, right? I, it's, it's possible. Um, so this guy actually had most of the marks of guys I really like, or at least guys I had liked up to this point. Um, <laughs> he was wearing a Muppets t-shirt, uh, which I was like, yeah, geeky, cool. He was super intellectual. Um, he had been wandering around the world pet sitting, and that's something I do. I connect with dogs. I connect with animals. And so we were having, like, this great conversation. I, there's someone in this room tonight that was, I was chatting with on Messenger because I have a little computer up. The world is amazing. Um, and I was like, dude, this guy. Um, and one, one of his first complimentary lines was, he was amazed at my age. So I look young for my age. Um, he thought that I was like 10 years younger. And then five minutes into the conversation, he's like, oh, I see it now. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> I'm presenting myself well for a minute. 
And as he, he, was, he was British and Canadian, he had dual citizenship. I'm like, wow, this is so cool. Um, and we're connecting on some of these things, but then I'm starting to feel like some of these things maybe might be those narcissistic signs that I've noticed or figured out in relationships in the past. And he was working as a night porter in the town I was headed towards, Lairwick, Shetland Islands. A night porter is someone who works at the hotel or the little like bed and breakfast, you know, helping people with stuff in the evening hours. And he had been there a year and finally said something like, he had asked me, he's like, okay, we're going to go on a date when we go to, when you get there and this will be great. And I was like, oh, sure. And he said something about how he had been there over a year and not made any friends, not made any connections. And I'm thinking, okay, well, you are being particularly like friendly with me, but that seems a little <laughs> misanthropic. There might be something wrong here. Um, but still, like, being game, and then we started drinking some beers. So enter second guy. And I apologize here because these were meaningful connections. This was really a weird night. I don't remember either of their names. There's first guy, there's second guy. Young guy, old guy? I don't know. Um, so second guy is about my dad's age. Completely different kind of connection. There was no possibility that this would be romantic. But he sits down, and he had talked to first guy, a little bit before, they had a previous connection. This guy had been a circus trainer. Like, he had trained tigers. I was like, yeah, we get to talk about more animals. This is amazing. Uh, he was a stonemason, or as I was calling him a stonemason, uh, he explained to me what a brickie was. He was very, very British. He was from London. And I was having a great time talking to him. More fun with him than I was having with that first guy because as I was connecting to the other, or the second guy, old guy, um, first guy was getting more and more uncomfortable. He didn't like that the intention was taken off of him. Now, after about two beers, as Jen is having fun in the middle of the North Sea, not worrying about anything, um, second guy happened to have cigarettes. And I'm like, wow, I didn't bring any cigarettes on this trip. It's been a few weeks. This is great. And also, in order to smoke, you had to go to the back of the boat. And it really, it was all dark at this point. This has been four hours in. And so you're watching the waves. I mean, it really looked like Titanic. And you're in the middle of nowhere, and you don't know where anything is. And he and I just talked and talked. And then he started offering me some vodka from his little bottle in his bag. Um, and at some point, I was going back and forth a few times. I asked first guy, increasingly irritated first guy, because um, he really wanted something. Uh, to watch my stuff, to watch my backpack. Because when you're traveling like this, if there's no place to keep your stuff, like you really have to trust that someone's going to keep track of it. One of these times I left and I came back, he was gone. He just left my stuff there. He had he had, had enough of whatever I was doing, and you know, that's fair. Um, so I continued on with second guy. We, at some point, thought that we... The phrase that sticks in my mind is solved the American Revolution or the Revolutionary War. I think that we just meant we bridged the gap across the ocean in some way. Um, we had made friends where this had been a problem. Uh, we talked about language a lot. I kept using the phrase, it's funny or that's funny, very specifically meaning that's interesting, how we use it in America. It took me about four, four times or four iterations of this conversation to realize that he was getting insulted. He thought I was laughing at him. So we had to explain what that meant. And 
It was just a very nice, I thought, safe connection. So at some point, we landed at the Orkney Islands, which is halfway to the Shetland Islands. This was about midnight. And he decides he's not getting off the boat, although he was supposed to get off the boat. I started getting uncomfortable because, well, one, things were changing a little bit, and also, I don't want to impact someone's life that way. I was very eager to make friends and have a connection. However, he had like a scheduled interview the next day, and he was going to put that off, and that was starting to feel weird. Um, and eventually, he did not leave the boat. And eventually he said something. The whole time this had not been flirting. And I know that, you know, there are different signals that people take and people give, and we can all have our own opinions on that. I seriously thought this was just a nice, safe space. I got rid of the guy that was probably interested that I didn't want, but then there's the guy that I didn't think was interested, interested and then he got a little weird. Not unsafe weird. There were tons of people on this boat. People were still up. This was about midnight or 1 o'clock. Uh, at some point, one of the deckhands came up to me and just offered me a pack of cigarettes so I would stop hanging out with the other guy. Um, <laughs> people like helping me. It's great. Um, and he did say something awkward like, well, where are you sleeping? And at that point, I made a very hasty exit. It probably wasn't hasty at all. At that point, I was probably very slow, but it was a very deliberate exit. And I went to my quiet sleeping cabin, which is a group sleeping cabin, and I just fell asleep. So I woke up on this boat, docked in Lairwick, the only person on this boat. And they do do alarms. They do wake you up in the morning. Everyone else had departed. I had apparently drunk enough that I just slept through everything. Um, I did not see a single person for another half an hour as I got all my stuff and got off the boat and walked through this fog to try to find my, um, my Airbnb. And... I was gathering myself, and I was just thinking about the absurdity of how I went on this trip and then felt like I needed something else from this trip and then got what I didn't want or I didn't need. And I sat down in this meadow. Um, well, actually, it was like a soccer field, right? When it was very quintessential, like English soccer fields. And I ate a little orange that I had in my bag, and I was gathering myself again. I'm like, OK. Lonely, not lonely. Now I have to go have English breakfast at this Airbnb and convince them that I don't smell like I've been drinking all night. Um, and I just put my backpack on and I headed out to seek more connections and more fun. And those are all different stories. Thank you. In the next story, John Klapko leans in pretty hard to commit to an April Fool's Day joke. Uh, so my favorite holiday is uh, Arbor Day, believe it or not. There's just something about big, knotty, girthy tree trunks that, oh. <laughs> just, I'm just kidding. Uh, for a really long time, my favorite holiday was April Fool's Day. I mean, I think, I think it's pretty easy to figure out why, but I'll tell you. Um, it's the only time of the year, at least as like a kid under my, you know, still living with your parents, that I got carte blanche to act like an asshole. You know, you can do some messed up stuff and get away with it. 
you know, and I started with all the dumb kid stuff, you know, like the feather and the shaving cream or, um, you know, putting my brother's hand in a bowl of water while he slept to try to, 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 you know, pee himself. But it never worked. So finally, I just gave up trying. Dinky stuff like that. Uh, that was only amusing to me. Um, I had to stop when I rigged a glass of water to fall from on top of the bedroom door. And it, it fell and hit my mom instead of my brother. And, uh, you know, she told me while well, a goose egg grew out of her head, basically, that I couldn't play pranks that hurt people. Reasonable, but it sucked all the fun out of my favorite holiday. But that's when I realized that it wasn't so much the pranks uh, that I liked. What I liked was the feeling that came after the pranks. You know, it's, it's the laugh that follows a punchline, that gotcha moment, like the, the bit with the tree, Arbor Day, just now. That, that feeling, you know? Uh, like, you know, when you tap someone on their left shoulder, even though you're on the, the right-hand side, it's the feeling that you get when you shout, oh my God, what's that? And everyone looks. You get the idea. Um, so without meaning to, my mom opened my eyes to much, much better options. So in, instead of trying to saran wrap toilet bowls or fool people with, you know, fake dog dew or rubber cockroaches, I started tricking people into believing things. Things like the principal got fired or I saw Bigfoot. Getting people to believe in a slightly different version of reality, even for like just a couple seconds, it was just a better rush. And it was a lot less messy, too. But really, really soon, I realized that it was super duper easy to trick people when they weren't expecting it. So I decided to only do it on April Fool's Day because then it would be more sportsmanlike, you know? They're actually on the lookout for stuff like that. And so if you get away with it, it's that much more rewarding. Usually people grow out of this by the time they're out of high school. I didn't, <laughs> which is unfortunate. Uh, the habit stayed with me probably till my mid-20s. About eight or nine years ago, I was living in New York with about two dozen roommates. More like three roommates. My Mark, my Mark, uh, my, my good friend Mark uh, and his girlfriend Alita. And then there was a third who I can't remember because his apartment was kind of like Grand Central. It was just there was always someone moving in and someone moving out. So I don't remember the third, but there was always a third. Um, and I had formed a decent network of friends and acquaintances by this point. I'd been in the city for a few years. Uh, and I... They seemed to like me pretty well, and I sure liked them quite a bit. So I thought that that year, for April Fool's Day, it would be a really cool idea to piss all of them off and hopefully alienate them forever. <laughs> I, didn't, I, I didn't think that consciously. It was, I think, subconscious. Um, you know, like, I think if you have a hard time making connections with people, you suddenly, and then you, you find yourself with like an, an abundance of those connections, you you're tempted to, to test it. You know, it was tempting to try and find out just how much they care, if at all. And so, like, April Fool's Day was a great smokescreen for that. Um, and maybe I wouldn't have even been tempted in the first place, but on that particular day, I got caught on a subway car with, like, 100 other people for over an hour underground. Uh, and the stress of the commute just got to me for a second. I was like, this shit does not happen in Michigan. And then, you know, boom, perfect April Fool's Day prank. I would convince my friends that I was leaving the city. 
And I decided that the best way to do that was to make a very dramatic post on Facebook. Uh, and this had the added bonus of increasing the fallout of the joke to like everyone I knew, not just my friends in New York. Uh, so here's what I wrote, copy-pasted from April 1st, 2011. <clears throat> my train was held at 145th Street for over an hour tonight because of a police investigation. I don't know who the guy was or what he did, but I guess I owe him thanks. Tomorrow afternoon, I'm taking a bus west. Goodbye, New York friends. I'll come visit in a year. I will miss the people, but I won't miss the smell. I will miss the food, but I won't miss the rat race. And then underneath that, in quotes, I put a song lyric. I want to taste the breeze of every great city. That last line is from a, a song called Admit It by the band Say Anything, and I picked it because it was, it's like an angsty song, and I thought it would help sell the idea of my, my move. As soon as I was you know, off the train and above ground, I started getting responses to this Facebook post, and each one came with like that little serotonin bump you get when you check your statuses on Facebook, you know, and you have a message or whatever. Uh, is this real? Travel safe. I miss you already. So excited, your room is ready. Uh, uh, my roommate Mark called bullshit like immediately because he knows that I cannot get on a bus, especially a charter bus, without aggressively bitching about it. And usually it was to him because he always wanted to take the bus and I was more of a trained person. Looking back, I think he had the right of it because I never had a bus get held for a police investigation. Uh, here's what he wrote. I know this isn't true because the Clapco I know would never move across the country on a bus. <laughs> One comment almost made me call the whole thing off. Uh, a friend I just met offered a bunch of encouragement. He said I could stay in his room for free while I got back on my feet. He offered commiseration about how shitty living in the city could be. He said that I was giving up and that wasn't like me. And it was so heartfelt. I almost apologized and deleted the post. Almost. Instead, I said, Jim, thank you. That means a lot. Uh, it doesn't count as an April Fool's Day joke if you don't write it out the entire day. You know what I mean? You have to really, really play it to the hilt. And Mark wasn't the first one who figured it out immediately. People started texting me. I asked them to keep it a secret while I tried to convince him that I was really telling the truth. For some reason, it was really important to convince him because... I mean, I'd known him since college, and he was my roommate, and he was my good friend, and it's just, it's more fun to trick people that you know. Um, one of the texts was from my friend Sharon. She wanted to see me one more time before I left the, the city. I met her at a soup shop where she tearfully pressed $30 into my hands and wished me luck. I of, course, I, of course, gave the money back, but I don't remember if I did it, like, right then or if I waited till the next day. <laughs> I'd like to think that I was smart enough to come clean to her right then and there, but I just, I don't remember. Uh, so, because making a girl cry and taking her money wasn't enough of a hint that my joke had maybe gone too far, um, I went back to texting Mark. He wanted to know what I was going to do with all my stuff that I left at the house. What was I going to do about the rent I owed him? I apologized profusely, and I told him to sell my $3,000 gaming computer to cover the costs until he could find a new roommate. But I still had all my clothes and everything. 
I told him to just throw it away or to donate it. I'm so sorry to make you deal with that, Mark, but this is something I really have to do. And he believed me. <laughs> and when I finally came home that night, every single thing I owned was lined up by the door inside black trash bags. Everything except for my computer, which they already had a buyer for. <laughs> and then not one, but three people on Craigslist already interested in taking my spot in the apartment. As you can imagine, stupid does not begin to describe the sound of the words April and fools as they came out of my mouth. <laughs> Luckily, they forgave me. I don't think I would have. Next, a snow day from school turns out to be anything but relaxing for Kayla Frost. I grew up the second youngest of eight siblings with our two parents in a small three-bedroom house. So my early years were basically total chaos. <laughs> my three oldest siblings shared one room. My brother, sister, and I shared another room, and the rest of our siblings had cots to sleep on. We would take turns with the cots and beds, sleeping wherever we deemed most comfortable. Uh, and don't ask about how we lived with only one bathroom. It was horrible. But we were on our way to fixing that in 98, when I was eight years old, and my father decided he was going to build onto our small house. Maybe it's, um, it's a bit of a stretch to say he decided that. My dad has always been a hardworking man, working construction, drywall, a mechanic, garbage picker. My mom learned early that if she wanted something done, all she had to do was mention it in passing. One day she said that it might be nice someday to have a fourth bedroom and a second bathroom in the house, and dad got to work on it on the addition that week. My father added a master bedroom, a full-size bathroom, and a garage to our little house within a month. He did most of the work himself with a little help from some of my uncles. Uh, my siblings and I still had to share rooms, but we didn't have to pull out the cots anymore, and there was a lot less fighting going on once we had that second bathroom. My father loved to please my mother when he saw how happy she was about the, addi the addition to our house every year after he would add more to the house. A couple years down the road, our, our town got a Wendy's fast food restaurant that happened to be built right behind our backyard. That year, dad fenced in our yard and planted some trees and to give us a little more privacy. And in the early 2000s, my oldest sibling started to move out of our house, which made more room for the rest of us. My younger sister and I still shared a room, but it was better than before. My older two siblings, who still lived with us, each got their own rooms. I didn't have my own room until I was around 15, when my brother moved out of the house. And the timing was really good, because I was an angsty teen who would rarely come out of my room, instead listening to loud music while imagining the world was out to get me. I had always considered the house upgrades a gift to my mom, but it was starting to feel like a gift to me, too. So that's where I was a year later, hiding in my room and listening to loud music and reading Water for Elephants by Sarah Gruen on a 2009 February snow day during a typical Michigan snowstorm. While I was reading, I kept hearing a light tapping on my door. And I knew my two sisters were home, as was my dad, 
who was babysitting our oldest sister, Crystal's kids. But every time I would answer the door, no one was there. So I would yell at my younger sister, Jamie, for her pathetic attempt to prank me, and Jamie would yell back that she wasn't doing anything. I finally just stopped answering the door, but the tapping never stopped. About 20 minutes later, I got used to ignoring the tapping noise and was really getting into my book when my older sister, Amanda, opened my door without knocking and said, get up, the house is on fire. Amanda wasn't in any kind of rush or panic, and I groaned, I closed my book, and I got out of bed. I guess it would have made more sense to react in terror and scramble around the room trying to save whatever I could, but as I said, my dad was big into do-it-yourself home repair, so let's just say that this was not the first time the fire department would have to be called to our house. <laughs> not the second or third time, either. But here's me, leisurely, getting out of bed and looking around the room, casually trying to figure out what I wanted to take for the 10 minutes we'd have to evacuate. I grabbed my MP3 player and the book I was reading and walked into the living room in the clothes I was wearing, the ugliest but most comfortable pajamas I owned. No one else seemed to be acting with any urgency either. Dad leisurely called 911. And the only person who seemed shocked and scared was some guy we'd never met who knocked on the door to tell us the house was on fire. Then he looked confused when we told him, eh, we know, thanked him, and <laughs> closed the door with us all still inside. <laughs> I just slipped my bare feet into my dad's work boots and was leaning down to help my nephew into his shoes when his mom, Crystal, came running back inside, to the, inside in a panic. The house is on fire, what are you doing? Crystal grabbed the nephew I was helping and ran outside with him and his car seat. You know, in that way a person is supposed to act when a house is on fire. <laughs> then again, her other son who she'd left behind in the house just looked at me and shrugged, so maybe she didn't get an A plus. <laughs> we finally all had our shoes on and filed outside the house and all seven of us, plus the family chihuahua, crammed into Crystal's car, which barely seats five comfortably. Crystal threw the car into reverse and screeched backwards 30 feet to get us out of the driveway. As my sister put the car in park, I said, well, we could have just walked instead of cramming ourselves into this car. But before anyone could snicker or agree with my statement, the roof of our house began smoking black clouds and flames began dancing along the shingles. It was so weird to me. We were just in there and everything seemed fine. We sat in silence watching our childhood home, the home my father so lovingly built for us, burn. It still hadn't sunk in yet. In our minds, we thought the house, that house fires were terrible tragedies that happened to other people, not to us. And I couldn't stop thinking that it couldn't possibly be as bad as it looks because our fire alarms never went off. In my stunned teenage mind, I thought, if the fire alarms don't go off, there isn't a fire. My dad called my mom at her work to tell her the house was on fire and she needed to come home now. And in my mom's mind, if my dad calls her at work to tell her something crazy, he's probably just joking because he would do things like that from time to time. And so we all had to sit in the car and listen to my dad trying so hard to convince my mom over the phone that, no, seriously, the house really is on fire. Suddenly, a man came hopping over our six-foot fence from our backyard and gracefully leaped through two feet of snow like a gazelle toward our front door to make sure no one was in the house. The man was at Wendy's when he noticed there was a house on fire. He jumped over two fences to make sure we were all right, but before he got to the front door, Crystal rolled down the window and yelled, We're all fine. 
The man double-checked with her that everyone was out and that we had called the police before he gracefully hopped back over the two fences and headed back to Wendy's. At this point, we could hear the fire trucks just outside of our subdivision. Crystal moved her car a little so the fire trucks could fit in the subdivision and park in front of our house. My mom arrived just after the trucks came. There were four departments that showed up. Our street was packed with four fire trucks and six fire volunteer vehicles. And now our subdivision felt very small, especially with our neighbors starting to come out of their house to see what was going on. Several of our neighbors offered us shelters in their home and brought us blankets and jackets to keep warm while the firemen started preparing the trucks to tackle the flames that were now fully engulfing our house. But not all our neighbors were so awesome. One couple in our neighborhood didn't say a word to us. They just set up lawn chairs in their front yard in the middle of February to watch the show. There came the point that everyone's calmness came to an end. First, Jamie started crying uncontrollably. I tried to calm her down, but then my youngest nephew remembered he'd left his Wii in the house, and when I wouldn't let him go back in to get it, he and his brother started crying just as hard. I tried my best as a scared 16-year-old to keep my voice calm and to keep everyone in the car from panicking more than they already were. After a very long 20 minutes, Crystal drove me, Jamie, the dog, and her two boys to our house. My mom wanted to protect us from further trauma, so she asked Crystal to take us somewhere else. When we got to Crystal's house, we called our family to let them know what was happening, and they all stopped what they were doing and immediately headed over to help my mom and dad. When we got to, when, while we were at Crystal's house, Jamie stopped crying. We all settled down a little, and none of us knew what to say or do. Crystal's boyfriend came over and immediately said he would take us all shopping right now. And Crystal proceeded to yell at him that our house is burning down and shopping is the last thing we wanted to do. We all started laughing, but honestly, I, I really did want to go shopping. All I owned at that very moment was the ugliest pajamas known to mankind and my dad's boots. The whole situation was ridiculous and surreal, and we were all a little hysterical. Later that day, we got a phone call from our mom. She asked us if there was any one thing that we wanted saved from our rooms. At this point, they had the fire, and a a fire out and a coffer dam up to hold the two feet of water flooding what was left of our home. The firefighters and my family and a few of our neighbors all started walking through the two feet of water in the middle of February so they could go into what was left of the house and try to save whatever they could for us. I asked them to save my acoustic guitar if they could. That was all I wanted, and I still own that guitar. The Wendy's behind our house made hamburgers and coffee for every single firefighter and person who helped with our house fire. Everyone was fed for free that night thanks to Wendy's. Even the couple with the lawn chairs got free dinner with their show. <laughs> One of our neighbors called Red Cross that night and told them what was happening, and the Red Cross gave my parents a check for $700 that night. An anonymous person stopped by and dropped off a huge tote filled with things we wouldn't have thought we needed. It had all the hygiene products we would need for the next month, and it had backpacks and school supplies for Jamie and I. We took the very few things that we now owned and stayed with family that night. The next day, we were exhausted. My parents were drained from the night before, and none of us had any idea how difficult the next few weeks were going to be. We had to prove to our insurance that we owned what we owned in our house, so we started sifting through the rubble and taking inventory of what we could find. After a week of doing this, both my father and brother got pneumonia from the ash and soot we were breathing. They recovered quickly, but it required each of them to have to stay in the hospital. Digging through our home was a long and sad process, but we got the inventory done. 
within a few weeks, and our insurance gave us the okay to start looking for builders. This was during the recession, so builders around town didn't have much work to do. We had people coming to us with offers to rebuild on top of our old foundation. When we finally decided on a company to, company to do the work, they got our new house done within five months. We got to design our own separate rooms and make our house the exact way we all wanted it, including making it handicap accessible. See, my dad had been diagnosed with MS before I was born. He was holding steady and doing just fine throughout all those years, but we knew that at some point way in the future, dad was going to need a wheelchair, and that point came one and a half years after the house he lovingly built had burned to the ground. So even though the new house came to us in a very dramatic fashion, it would never compare to the house my father built for us, but it definitely helped us adapt into the new life we were about to begin. Next up, it's a family affair as Dave Murphy's uncle needs his help collecting some treasure at sea. I like to kayak. You'll find me out on the bay anytime it's not frozen. And I love that kayak is both a verb and a noun. That means I can kayak my kayak. Um, I can't car my car, uh, although I can bike my bike. But I really love kayaking, and when we have visitors to the area, many of them ask, why don't you have a boat and a motor? Wouldn't that be more convenient? Couldn't you get out and do more with it? And I, I have a, something of an elaborate explanation, but it's basically the analogy would be when I was a child growing up in the Sioux, every exposure to boat and motors was kind of like climbing the stupid tree and getting to the top limb and falling off of the stupid tree and hitting every branch on the way down and still missing the ground. Everything that could go wrong with a boat and motor went wrong with a boat and motor while we were out. Uh, propellers would fall off. We would try to anchor. We would heave the anchor out and watch the line leave because it wasn't attached to the boat. Drain plugs would mysteriously disappear. The boat would fill up. Uh, we'd pull starter cords on outboard motors, and they would come out. And then we would try to paddle back, and the paddles would break. Um, we were on the um, St. Mary's River one time when the first 1,000-footer came through, specifically to be out there for that. We ran out of gas. We ended up in the shipping lane, and I got a remarkably close view of the 1,000-footer before <laughs> we changed gas tanks, and we peeled out there with seconds to spare. On two other occasions, not one, but two, my brother loaded, and we always had beat up stuff, beat up cars, beat up boats, and he loaded the trailer and boat into the water, but he got in so deep that the back of the car started to float. And on one occasion, I was 10 years old, and he took off running down the road, and I was holding the boat, the line to the boat, while pushing the car as he raced away trying to find help, and he did it a second time. Even when we weren't on the water, my life was put in jeopardy. We got a car, we got a boat and trailer unstuck. It had been in muck for a year. We pulled it out on the road, and I kept watching it because it was pinwheeling uh, muck and debris off of the tires, and that was fascinating to me. And after that stopped happening, I could see skid marks. And then I looked to the front, and there were no skid marks to the front. So I told my brother, and he checked the mirror, and he 
looked in front and he says, it, it's gotta be an optical illusion. It's like when you think you're seeing water up ahead on the road. And I disagreed with him. And at the precise moment that he said, shut up you moron, the tire exploded. We, f we fishtailed out of control and by inches we avoided a head-on collision. So with all of this backstory, none of that tops the incident I'll tell you more about, and that involved my Uncle Jack. Jack was the slightly younger brother of my mother. He was an early scuba diver on the Great Lakes, and in fact, he found some historically significant shipwrecks. What most people didn't know until tonight is that before Jack would report the shipwrecks, he would go down with dynamite, because he was a treasure hunter, and he would blow up sections of the shipwrecks in search of a payroll box or a safe. Jack never found a treasure, but he would stun fish, and they'd float to the surface. And so if you're looking for the bright side, we had a lot of fish fries. Um, Jack took me out on many of his harebrained adventures, but one in particular took place at the head of the Sioux Locks. We put it on the St. Mary's River. And Jack rarely told me what we were gonna do before we got started. So we get out and he starts to reveal, reveal the plan as he hits the throttle. And um, what we're gonna do is go across the river into Canada. There's an enormous steel mill there, Algoma Steel. And Jack's gotten a tip that they drop steel and iron ingots off the boats or, while they're trying to load the freighters. And he has a spot marked from a friend and we're gonna anchor and he's gonna retrieve the ingots. He's gonna bring them back, sell them for scrap and he'll give me a cut. And so I'm gonna translate what I just told you that Drax said. <laughs> At this point in time, going into international waters without a permit is a crime. Anchoring at a private dock of a large industrial corporation in a foreign country is a crime. <laughs> Diving down to retrieve their product for his own use is a crime. Returning it across international waters is a crime. And then converting the stolen goods to cash by selling it to a scrap shop is a crime. If you've lost count, that's five crimes <laughs> that I'm aware of. So Jack's explaining this to me. I'm 13 or 14 years old, and we uh, haul over. It's, it's a quick run on flat calm water, and we get over to the Canadian side. And this, I've seen this operation my entire life, but until you get there, you can't imagine the expanse of it. It's one of the largest steel mills in Canada. So he anchors, and there's a couple of Canadians on shore that are eyeballing us. It's, uh, it, normally this would be really busy, but it's a weekend. So it's quiet except for the couple guys. They're bearded, flannel shirts. Um, they have a fishing pole in one hand and a Molson Canadian in the other. And it's 8 a.m. So for nutritional balance, they have a huge box of donuts. And they're, they're curious about this, but they don't say anything while Jack is there. So Jack is, Jack is remarkable. He can gear up faster than anyone. So he's putting on his scuba equipment. He's talking to me. He's doing five things at once. He's got this rusted, decaying winch and a big basket that he's going to take down. So he's cobbling this onto the side of the boat, and he's giving me the details. And his plan is he knows where this stuff is. He thinks there's a big mound of it. He'll load it quickly, and then I'll winch it up. And so in no time, Jack's in the water. And when the Canadians see that the adult is in the water, they start quizzing me with questions. What are you doing here, kid? And one of them, one of them actually said, hey, kid, you want a donut, eh? And... 
and then he laughs at me. And it's, it's the only time in my life I've been taunted with a donut. And, but they're very curious. And in no time, Jack is tugging on the line. So clearly, he's got a big supply down there, and he can load them quickly. So I try to crank, and I can't make much progress. And what Jack has failed to take into account is that he's 30 feet beneath the surface and has the buoyancy of water, and he's loading 40-pound ingots, and he gets 10 into a basket. And now a 13-year-old is up on the surface trying to crank on an old winch. So I'm struggling, and I'm trying to get it. And the Canadians are now really curious because the boat is tilting. And so they're yelling out more questions. And the water is getting choppy. It's getting really choppy. And all of a sudden, Jack's on the surface screaming at me, what the hell are you doing? Get your ass in gear. I, I'm burning up oxygen down here. Get it, and the boat's tilting. Get them centered. And he's, so he's screaming at me. And it's, it's really feeling like chaos. It's overwhelmed to me. And so he's back down as soon as I unload the, the basket. And I have to get the ingots centered because I've got 400 pounds of them on the boat. And so I'm working, and the Canadians are still yelling questions. And the water is stirring up more, and Jack's tugging on the line. And so I crank up again, and I get another one going. And we repeat this about five times. We've got about a ton of iron or steel ingots that are loaded onto the boat. And I'm not paying attention because I'm desperate. I'm fighting off Canadians with donuts. I'm watching the water. The crank won't work. And so suddenly Jack's on the surface, and he hears, now there's like five or six Canadians, and it's a bit of a mob, and they're getting upset. They know we're doing something that we shouldn't be doing. So they're yelling, and Jack notices, and he sees the boat's overloaded. So he jumps on board, and he says, we're getting the hell out of here. And the only thing he drops are his fins and his tank, and he gets, uh, gets up to the front. We pull anchor, we haul out, and we pull out into what is the opening into Whitefish Bay. So we're looking northwest, and that opens into True Lake Superior. And we see a roiling mass of black clouds and black water and white caps coming at us. It looks like Armageddon. And we are in an overloaded, lopsided boat and there's probably some donuts that have been thrown at us in addition to ingots. And uh, a normal guy would say, let's go back and see where they got the donuts, but not Jack, he guns it. So we head into these waters, and it is frightening. And it, one of the most disconcerting sounds I've ever heard is when a boat is jostled so much that the prop comes out of the water. So now instead of chewing water, it's chewing air. And Jack actually puts on his diving mask because we're being pelted with rain and surf, and I can't see anything, and the noise is overwhelming. It is surf and wind and engine noise. And Jack finally yells, I don't know if we're going to make it. And so I, so I yell to him, should I throw some of the ingots overboard to lighten the load? And he yells back, are you nuts? Do you know what kind of risk we took to get those things? Leave them there. And so, unbelievably, and, and it takes forever, we make it. We make it back. It's a miracle. So we get back. Jack delivers me back home, and he said, I, I need to sell the ingots, and we'll settle up. So a couple weeks elapse. Jack comes back to the house, and he says, here's the deal. I got a lot of overhead into this operation. <laughs> I, got, I got gas for the car. We drove three miles. Uh, I got gas for the boat. We boated six miles. I got to fill up my oxygen tanks. He always did that at my grandmother's to use her electricity. <laughs> so he's got all these expenses and excuses. And then he says, and the boat took a beating because you didn't center the ingots properly. So I had to do some repairs. Okay. 
And uh, I'm the mastermind of this thing. So I take 90%, you take 10%. And I didn't get crap from the uh, scrapyard. So it, when you do all the math, what it adds up to is your cut is 75 cents. And this is the 1970s, it's a long time ago. Money then wasn't what it is today, but 75 cents. And, and so, um, and this wasn't the first time this guy had taken me out on one of these schemes, but it was the first time he offered to pay me. So I, I look at him, I just said, you know what, Jack, uh, just keep it. And so I, I thought maybe he was a little bit ashamed. He looked down at his feet and uh, he took a big deep breath and he finally looked at me and he said, okay. And that is why, to this day, I would rather kayak my kayak. <laughs> Thank you. And in our last story, Anne Stanton's ignorance of pop culture catches up to her at a very inopportune moment. So... When I was a kid and growing up, I noticed that grown-ups used to talk a lot about their childhoods. And I thought, it's just crazy, you know? Like, your childhood is like 15% of your entire lifetime. Why are people so hung up? But now I understand. Um, I personally um, grew up with eight brothers and sisters. And all of us went to mass every Sunday. My dad was a narcotics detective, and my mom was an emergency room nurse. And you can imagine our conversations at night. You know, drug dealers went to prison and people who rode motorcycles died. And um, it was, in short, home life was like a movie. Less about fun and more about all the horrible things that would happen to people who made bad choices. So maybe that's why my parents banned us from, well, most of what most other kids enjoyed in life going out to movies, listening to a new band called The Beatles, and eating food like Wonder Bread and Hostess Twinkies. <laughs> well, at least they were right about that last one. So their censorship of popular culture started in earnest. I was four years old, and my little brother Kevin was three. And we were watching The Adventures of Superman one day. And um, we just thought it was a lot of fun to like fly. And so we went upstairs and we put towels around our necks like they were Superman capes. And we were running around going, Superman, Superman. And then I saw Kevin run down the hallway with his cape flying. And he said, Superman, with his arms outstretched. And he went right out the window. So um, our babysitter saw a human object fly past the window and land in a flowering bush. And unfortunately, Kevin was barely hurt. But so that's how my parents started viewing pop culture as the enemy. Um, <laughs> we were banned from watching Superman immediately, and they actually did put bars on the windows. Um, and then the Three Stooges came next because my five brothers were constantly like poking each other's eyes out. <laughs> and so the television itself was interesting, or should I say televisions, because we had a TV that was going fine and then suddenly the sound disappeared. And so then another TV appeared beside it and it had sound but no picture. So to watch, like, say, the Gilligan's Island, we had to turn both TVs on. 
And our friends would come over and they'd say, whoa, you have two TVs. I said, oh yeah, we do. <laughs> so, um, so I used to go over to my one TV friend's house and, um, and, we, and it, chop suey was on the menu and I said, whoa, this is really interesting chop suey. And my, my friend's mom said, well, how so? And I said, well, it's got beef in it. And she said, yeah. <laughs> what do you have in your chop suey? And I said, well, spam. It's delicious. <laughs> and she said, I see. And then she hooted and not in a nice way. So anyway, one day my um, sister Mary, you know, do you remember those Reader's Digest contest sort of forms that you used to get? She filled one out, sent it in, and we actually won a new TV in RCA Council. And that was pretty exciting to have that, and the two mutant TVs went away. <laughs> and our prayers were answered, except they weren't entirely, because we were still confined to maybe three TV shows. George Perot, I Dream a Genie, and uh, Disney World on Sunday nights. So I wasn't allowed to watch Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In, although I secretly watched it from the stairway because it was reflected in the gas glass door. And when it came to music at home, we could only listen to what our parents liked, which was uh, Johnny Cash, The Singing Nuns, and polka music. <laughs> we weren't allowed to listen to The Rolling Stones and going to movies, forget it, way too expensive, nine kids are not doing it. So despite the restrictions on TV, we had fun. We explored the woods, even though it was the same woods all the time. And we played hide and seek and kickball and tag. And I thought, you know, maybe this is a little bit more fun than watching TV and the Brady Bunch with their fake lives. And it just gave me a headache to watch those anyway. But <clears throat> I did become acutely aware that I didn't know much of what the other kids knew. When someone asked me who my favorite band was, I'd say, the Carpenters? Um, and I didn't know if that was a really good answer because that was like one of the very like three bands I knew and I just really only knew that I hated Lawrence Welk. But, and I was a clarinet geek and I qualified for a scholarship to go to Europe with a symphony band and my boyfriend's, and I say boyfriend loosely, <laughs> dad used to take us to camp and one time we stopped at a restaurant for breakfast and I was 16, I'd never been to a restaurant. So I walked into the House of Pancakes as if entering the Louvre. I mean, everything sparkled and, and smelled delicious. We took our seats and I started to look at all the cute things on the table, like the creamers and the sugar packets. And then like I noticed like this sort of stack of colorful things and I lifted it up I said, oh, what is this? And my boyfriend, he looked at me and he said, it's a jelly packet. <laughs> like what you put on your toast. And then he snickered, not in a nice way. <laughs> he looked at me like I was an anthropology project. So I could have slipped under the table and needless to say, he really never talked to me again. But... <clears throat> I went to college, and then I had my opportunity to catch up. I learned that there was no X in especially, there was no R in the word wash, and I was on my way. I could listen to music, I could watch movies. 
Um, but yet, for all my desire to fit in, um, I was pretty well programmed. I mean, I would look at those guys on my dorm floor putting quarters in to watch video games or to play them. Remember that when you had to pay? I thought, they're idiots. I mean, this is never going to make it. It's expensive and it's a waste of time. So, and I didn't really want to read People magazine because reading about famous people wasn't in my DNA. But you know what I learned is, is um, I had great capacity for remembering things for schoolwork, but I could not remember the names of famous people or bands or anything. It was just like it would just disappear from my brain. So when I, when I married Doug uh, Stanton, um, I didn't tell him right away that I was so culturally ignorant. Of, of course he noticed. <laughs> I mean, Doug can tell, like, weirdly, like from the 1920s on, like movies and who was in them and the directors and bands. And I just, I mean, I'm, I'm going to put him on Jeopardy someday because he would, he would win. So fast forward to 2001, um, Doug had published a book called In Harm's Way and it gained a lot of notice. And Interlochen Arts Academy sent us a letter and said, we're inviting all of our alumni to go to the Lincoln Center in New York City and we'd like you to go too. And um, Doug showed me the letter and I thought, shit, there are going to be so many famous people there and I'm not going to know any of their names. <laughs> but I thought, okay, I'm gonna do my best. I'm gonna at least look the part. So um, I decided to do something I'd never done before, which was get my eyebrows waxed. And um, so I went in and when they, stripped off the wax, they took off part of my skin, and which then scabbed over, and I thought, well, that's not a good look. <laughs> and then I, not learning my lesson, I went to go get a facial, and it was painful, not anything like I thought it was gonna be, and then all of my imperfections under my epidermis just exploded, and, and I just like had these red marks all over my face, so like, I'm not looking that good. But, and then the final thing, which I did was stupid, was decide to get some high heels because I'd only ever worn flats. <laughs> so I walk into a shoe store and I said, I'm going to a big deal event and I need some high heels. And so he showed me like these nice, sexy shoes, you know, pointy toes, high heels, three inches. And he said, no worries, it's Italian leather, they'll stretch. <laughs> And um, so, so we get to New York, and I buy a lot of concealer, and um, I'm looking good, you know? It's, it's all like fixed up, and uh, I put on makeup. <clears throat> so we're in a New York cab, and we're in front of the Lincoln Center, and I, I change into my shoes. And we walk into the Lincoln Center, and from the distance between the cab and the cloakroom, I am in terrible pain. I mean, it's excruciating. I thought, there's no way I can wear these high heels. So I put back on my boots. And I thought, I'm passable. I mean, I know the New Yorkers are going to look at me and go like, oh, what a Midwestern girl. But I, you know, it's like, I don't care. And so we get in, and the usher treats us very nicely and shows us to our seats, and we are like in the best seats. 
of the of the event. Everyone's chatting and they're wearing nice clothes, and I think I have arrived. So, so there's this guy, and he's he's in back of us. He's he's handsome, dark hair, nice smile, and uh, I say hi. I mean, you know, this Doug, he's actually the Interlochen alumni, he wrote a book about World War II, and I said, you know, what's your name? And he says, Josh Groban. <laughs> and I said, well, hi, Josh. What do you do? <laughs> he says, I sing. And I like, I like from the sideways, I, I see Doug wincing. <laughs> And, and Josh looks a little crestfallen. And, um, and so Doug's kind of like going like, and I go, what? He says, it's Josh Groban. He's like number one on the radio. I said, oh. And um, J Josh has a publicist right next to him. And she says, gee, I, I guess I'm not doing my job. <laughs> I said, no worries, I have a disability. I, I don't know anything about pop culture. I didn't really say that. But Doug, to his credit, he didn't make me feel stupid. And um, he never has made me feel stupid. <laughs> Even when I was calling Hugh, God, I'm going to get this wrong, <laughs> Hugh Jackman, Jack Human. <laughs> he knows that somehow growing up, I learned to view TV and movies and video games and movie stars as not that important. So he just laughs in a good way. All right, folks, we're trying to hold it together here. As I mentioned earlier in this podcast, Jen Loop is here with us. Um, so if you're a regular listener of the Hearsay podcast, you know that normally we invite in-studio guests to chat with us about the next show's theme. But of course, we're all sheltering in place these days. And in fact, you could say that right now, Jen is our in-Zoom guest. And so we know that Hearsay will go live again someday. We just don't know when. So we're going to talk to Jen a little bit about the theme that was supposed to be the next one. Plus, we'll just go wherever the hell this takes us. And it's really weird to have this conversation through a computer. How are you guys doing today? AJ is here with us also. So Jen, Hi. AJ, how are you guys holding up? Pretty darn good. I'm starting to get used to this whole new life we have, right? Seeing people's faces, but not really seeing them. Right. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's sort of working. Nice to see you. Having all like the video chats. I'm calling people that I have talked to like maybe once a year. Just sure. calling someone once a day. Seeing yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, Passover is uh, this week. And uh, mm -hmm. I was invited to um, like a Zoom thing Wednesday or Saturday. I was like, well, I have Zoom Seders both those nights. <laughs> it's like, you know, bread of affliction, video conferencing, just like Moses used to do. <laughs> um, so, uh yeah, um, we were going to talk about Ventriloquist. That was going to be the next show. Don't know when that will be, but it will be at some point when we can all meet again in public <laughs> at some point. Um, so the theme was going to be Ventriloquist. Jen, you're a dog trainer. Do you consider yourself the voice of dogs? I love this question. Um, 
I do. I mean, as much as I'm able, that's one of the fascinating things about dogs. We're still always learning new things about how to get in their brains. And will we ever know as much as we will we ever know what's going on in another human's brain? Uh, but at least I've dedicated some time to think about it. And yeah, I think I can get close. I think I can help people understand a little bit more. I think that's that's a good way to put it. Yeah. What do you think is among like the top things that people misunderstand about dogs? I've always like, you know, sometimes people will say, oh, you know what? Actually, I'm not even going to say sometimes people will say I'll give something very specific. Jackson, you know, whenever mm-hmm. people would come over, like if anyone hugged, he would try to break it up. And people would always say, he's so jealous of you. He's so protective of you, but it had nothing to do with me because if let's say he had never met you and AJ before and you both came into my house and hugged, he would not care for that either. Like, even if I was standing right next to him, he was just like, um, you know, like the warden on uh, Arrested Development, you know, no touching. So (laughs) the warden, I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, that's a really good example of one of those behaviors because um, my professional take would be that he was uncomfortable with the behavior as a behavior, which Mm -hmm. isn't specific to you. It's, you know, it is what is that thing um, or that, you know, that action and I do think a lot of the time, um, those are the kind of things that kind of trip people up because we don't know exactly what they're thinking. Uh, but if a dog could say anything, it probably would be that they're trying, like they're trying to understand things. And if they do have some sort of, you know, wall up or confusion, it's usually because they just don't understand what's going on. They're having to understand a whole different species too. We don't give them enough credit. <laughs> right. Um, so do you think part of the problem is how we anthropomorphize dogs, you know, like the 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 cartoons where it's like it or the commercials where it looks like the dog is saying human words, which just that is among the top 10 things that freaks me out, going to be honest. Right. <laughs> I don't I um, don't care for that. The visual of that or like just the action of them saying human words, which which is more freaky. Um yeah, I Hide. it's it's a weird fine line because I think we're learning more and more that they are a lot like us cognitively, but at the same time, assuming that our um our emotions would be the same for them or their reactions would be the same is is sometimes hard to hard to um justify or validate, I suppose. Yeah. So do, do you just like wanna like yell and scream and claw your face off when people say that like oh the dog feels guilty? Yeah, guilt is one of those that we're pretty sure is not, at least in some of the contexts that we think that they are displaying guilt, um, there's an easier explanation. I mean, it's like that old adage, right? Um, why assign so much more thought when when the easiest or the most simple explanation is probably the right one. Um, but yeah, higher order emotions, jealousy, guilt. There might be some element of that in there, but sometimes it's more that they're just trying to make us feel better. That's the mm-hmm. guilt explanation. It, and it does make a lot of sense. Most of those displays are, um, are appeasement gestures. And so we interpret that as guilt. They're actually just, they know you're mad, but the idea is they don't know why you're mad. Right. And so like that, that we're going further down the line sometimes than, than maybe we can safely go. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I started fostering a dog. I'm one of those people who uh, fostered a dog for the quarantine. <laughs> um, uh, it actually just kind of worked out that way. Like it was yeah, already right. in place before the self-isolation was ordered. Um, like I couldn't get her right away. Um, so it's just the timing was excellent. And, you know, she seems to have come from a neglect background, but she's doing great. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and then I was just act- actually saying earlier today, like, I wonder how much she retains of that, you know? Like, yeah. Like, is she like, wow, this is so much better than it was? Or is she like, life has always been fantastic, but also certain things make me uncomfortable and I don't know why. <laughs> um, yeah, right. Like higher order thought. And, and there's a lot of people doing research into what kind of memory they have. It is certainly, it certainly seems true that they have memory of people and maybe like circumstance in certain environments. Um, but to think that they go back and forth like we do might be a little different. So like yeah. sitting there thinking, man, this is so much better, um, which we are all doing right now in our lives. <laughs> like this is so much worse than things used to be. Um, <laughs> I think that's one of the gift of, gifts dogs have is their ability to just be in the moment. Doesn't mean that they don't have like things that are connected to the past, but. Yeah. Wow, we're like going full on dog say here. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> have, okay, you, ever, <laughs> you have any ambitions to uh, do a dog training podcast? I, sh- I should, or I at least should do some Zoom classes, but um, I it's the talking to people that aren't there. I mean, they're there, but like I, I do a lot of, it's almost like a performer. Um, like you feed off the audience, you know? And so it's like, ah, those people are just staring at me. Are they laughing? And then the delayed three seconds? I'm not right. sure. <laughs> yeah, no, I have to say that I was on a Zoom call um, last week, two weeks ago. I don't know everything. It's all just one big blob of day at this point. Um, but yeah, I was, uh, so I was on this call and I wasn't wearing makeup or a bra and all of a sudden, and I was like, it was all women and you couldn't yeah. see me except like from I was shoulders up, you know, but still all of a sudden I just got so self-conscious that I had to do a little like maneuver to exit the, to like leave the camera for a second to go put on a bra for these boobs that nobody could see because it was just like everyone, it's like really exposed in a way that is not like if you were right in front of me, it would feel different. Don't you think? Kind of like you're thinking about so many different things and there's only a part of you displayed. I was thinking about that too. I'm like, I'm wearing leggings. Should I have different pants on? Like, it does, <laughs> even though nobody can see my legs. Exactly. I am wearing pants. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. Well, I think you're like ahead of 95% of the population if you actually put on pants. So. <laughs> um, yeah. So actually going back to dogs really quick, you gave me as a gift, a pit bull a oh. Dean Russo puzzle, which mm-hmm. I just finished it last night. That was hard. Was it? Oh I, my God. It was I so awesome. Something about that on social media and I was going to apologize, but you got through it. Okay. Yeah. No, apparently the ones that have a lot going on, I like in the early goings, I'm like, I might just like sweep this off the table in a fit of rage. <laughs> yeah. All the little pieces look busy and the same. Good. Yeah. Good powering through. I have a few like that. I need to start. Yeah. But then one day it's like, oh, I found two pieces that go together that are not end pieces and now yeah. life is grand and I'm going to power through. So it was, it was very gratifying to, uh, yeah. to actually finish. So what are you doing to, I mean, I'm just like, I just puzzles, puzzles, so many puzzles. That's basically what I do now. Mm-hmm. Um, well, how are you keeping busy? Well, I planted some seeds last week in a nice little like indoor kind of store-bought greenhouse. And so moving those around and like getting the little seedlings in their own little space, Plants. I have a big plant hobby. Um, trying to go for walks. That's good. Coloring. I brought out the coloring books. Nice. The adult coloring books. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, AJ? What are you doing to stay sane? I've been crushing a lot of books. Yeah. Nice. 
some fantasy stuff, some Tom Robbins. I've got Lord of the Rings sitting out just in case I need to go back to the Shire and I thought about that. That's a good, that's a good poll. I actually have Harry Potter waiting because that's like such a quick, easy, where am I now? Yeah, it's nice to have an escape. Yeah. I don't want to know more about this puzzle strategy you have. So you start with the edges? Always. You don't? I do, but I've (laughs) seen people not do it. (laughs) Um, Who are you? (laughs) I I start from the center and I work my way out. The very center piece. That's the only piece we can find. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I saw some things. I guess a lot of people are talking about puzzles now. Like, that's just what we do. And I saw there's an article that was published the other day um, that was like, someone was like, no, I will never do puzzles. They're the worst. I'm like, who are these monsters? <laughs> oh, also, why cut yourself off from something that could be put, like potentially beneficial? Right. Eh, hey. their own. I don't like Dave Matthews Band. I, people tell, look at me like I have 12 heads whenever I say that out loud. So <laughs> usually I, that's the quiet part, but every now and then it has to be known. That and chocolate covered pretzels. Ugh. Um, <laughs> Not saying either. I'm with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, sweet, sure. Savory, sure. Not at the same time. <laughs> I agree. Kettle corn. What, what is that monstrosity? <laughs> I always feel bad saying no to the kids standing out front of the kettle corn place. But I like, I genuinely don't like it, but yeah. <laughs> now and then I'll just take it. Cause you know, like maybe, it makes, maybe it makes their day a little better. Well, oh, maybe, oh, but oh, within oh. these times that might be going away, no one's going to hand you food on the street. <laughs> at least not for the line. <laughs> well, my problem is solved. <laughs> yeah yeah no for the foreseeable future <laughs> we are, that is just not going to be a thing I imagine mm-hmm. um yeah no uh, but going back to puzzles it's funny my my boyfriend he'll put like pieces on top of other pieces <laughs> and I'm just, no I think it's just like like he's like this doesn't go anywhere so I'm just going to put it on top of the pieces that are already put together and like I never I never knew like that like I do have like some deep-seated anxiety in me still. What if the piece that gets covered up is important later? Yeah. Like, you have to see every single piece. That's the first thing I do. I flip all the puzzle pieces over so I can see all the colors. Maybe it's color. It's just so funny because it's such a minor nothing thing and I'm like... (gasps) (laughs) I think people have their own ways of sorting. I think people have their own, like, what color do you go for first? I think it's okay to be particular about puzzles. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I might, uh, you know, try out for the Olympics in, yeah. in this at some point. No, I won't because I'll get frustrated and quit really fast. If it's like, if it's not some, like a lot of my puzzles are like these quaint, ye oldie, timey type mm-hmm. <laughs> puzzles. It's just like, like a slice of Americana. There's always yeah. a cat. <laughs> There's always a cat and an American flag, um, but Got these uh, somewhere. Yeah, then these chaos, chaotic, colorful puzzles. Woo. Um, the pictures of easier times. That's nice too. That's good, true. Yeah, yeah, a good little like flashback as we're figuring out life right now. Right. Yeah, I have so much food in my house in the freezer. Because I just, I don't want to leave again. <laughs> I don't want to go to the grocery store again. Have you guys been to the grocery store? That is really panicky. It is um, not fun. It's not fun. Yeah. I love grocery shopping. And now is, I'm just like, get me out of here. <laughs> this has definitely changed over the last couple of weeks where 
you know, in the beginning, it was pretty much business as usual. There's no toilet paper or anything, whatever. But uh, now you go there and I, it's like half of the people have masks when I went yeah. on Thursday and soon it's just going to be everyone and it's going to be a ghost town. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, but I am glad I went in, though, because uh, when I had tried to do like an online cart and then I was like, ah. Like they didn't have anything I wanted. And so I was thinking, you know, I should just go in and just see what my alternatives are. But it turned out that a lot of the things they said that they did have, they didn't. And the things that they said they didn't have, they did. Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah. So I now have matzah, which they said they did not have. And I was like, who the heck bought all the matzah in Traverse City? That would be an interesting <laughs> choice for people. I, it seems to depend on store by store too. Yeah. I was in Costco yesterday thinking about the last minute stuff I should get. Um, and they were pretty well stocked, but then some stores are just out of random things. It seems like, oh yeah, no, I bought so many onions at the last trip because the last two times I had gone before, apparently people were panic buying onions. They're still panic buying green peppers, (laughs) but, but I was able to get onions and I consider that just a small victory in life. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) so, all right, well, thanks for jumping on the computer you guys um hopefully we can uh do this in person sometime (laughs) (laughs) yeah hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in traverse city michigan you can follow us on facebook and instagram and you can subscribe to our podcast on itunes podbean and stitcher our podcast is produced by aj scott thank you to our venue sponsor the workshop brewing company And thank you to our photography sponsor, Harp Star. Another thank you to our in-studio guest, Jen Loop. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Join us next time live, whenever that may be. Thanks for listening.